Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Uh, up front, we want to thank our audience for questions coming from at Feeds Explorers, Cindy W., Mike P., and Todd A. We have Craig Perry on the line today. Craig is President, CEO, and Director of ISO Energy Limited. ISO is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under symbol ISO. Craig, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So Craig, uh, give us your background and then tell us about your past successes and failures. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there's more failures than successes, but um, we, we, we've had a couple of successes that we can talk about. Um, so, so my background, look, I'm an exploration geologist. I spent uh, nine years with Rio Tinto in, in various different locations. I kicked off in the Pilbara looking for iron ore and diamonds. Uh, in, down there in that great Pilbara Iron Ore province of Australia. Uh, spent a couple of years in Chile, a couple of years in China, the usual sort of Rio Tinto thing, and then had a global exploration role looking for, you know, project generation for iron ore uh, before leaving to, to start a number of my own companies with a, a few partners. Um, you know, some of your listeners might be familiar with uh, Owen Hegarty, uh, who was one of my partners at the Tigers Realm group of companies. Owen, Owen built Oxiana from 2000 up to 2006 from a you know a 10 million dollar market capitalization up to a 6 billion market cap during that last resource boom um, and uh, in in that tigers realm group of companies where I was a partner with Owen we started a number of companies uh, a few things listed here in Canada on the TSX um, my main baby there was was Tigers Realm Coal, where we where we built a Tier One coking coal asset and mine out in far eastern Russia of all places. Uh, and then uh, one of the other things that I, I was I helped uh, start at that time and co-founded was NextGen Energy with Lee Courier, who who is the CEO of NextGen. Uh, Lee's um, also my chairman at ISO Energy. Uh, and you know we were very fortunate there to make a discovery, the Arrow deposit in the Athabasca Basin. And, uh, we started that company. We did, did the initial capital raise in that company uh, at five cents, and it's now trading around three dollars a share. So that's been a tremendous win for investors. Um, you know, in t uh, so so that's one of the things. I'm also involved and in a shareholder and co-founder of a company called EMR Capital, uh, which is now I think the second private, biggest private equity fund in the world uh, for resources. Um, we've got about two billion under management there at EMR Capital, so that that's gone very well. Um, some of the failures, well, there's plenty of those. Uh, Tigers Realm Coal was, you know, I think we, we did well there to acquire a, num a number of assets in Far Eastern Russia that were really tier one in nature. Uh, but of course, unfortunately, with the Ukrainian situation in Russia, it became very difficult to raise capital uh, and uh, and advance that project as quickly as we, we can. So I think, you know, shareholders are still suffering there a little bit, uh, but we hope that'll turn around one day soon. Uh, and then, you know, out of Next Gen Energy, I should say, we we we, uh, we spun out ISO Energy. Uh, that was uh, in Next Gen. We had a bunch of properties out in the eastern Athabasca in, in some very, very good targets. Uh, of course, our, our shareholders at Next Gen wanted us to focus on uh, that Arrow deposit, advancing that Arrow deposit. So we thought it made sense to move those assets out into ISO Energy, you know, staff the company up, fund the company and, and give those projects the, the attention they deserved. Uh, in in a different group, we've also you know I come back to that a little bit about the ISO strategy and the reason we spun it out of NextGen. But what that means is that you know we've got the full might of NextGen there behind us. Uh, NextGen's now got a billion dollar market capitalization. We've got 130 million in the bank. Uh, so you know having having that uh, expertise, experience, and financial might behind us is uh, is very good for our company at ISO Energy as well. Right. Okay. Well, well. Before we get into ISO a little bit more, and of course there are mm -hmm. a, a little bit of discussion points with NextGen, EMR. What's what's EMR focused mm -hmm. on right now in natural resources? What is what is EMR looking at? Yeah. So so look at EMR. That we we've got. Uh, you know, I should say that I'm a shareholder and, and help start the company. Um, I'm, I'm no longer formally involved on a day to day basis. I lend a bit of casual advice, of course, and um, you know. 
it's still involved to that extent. But uh, EMR, you know, tremendous success there. Owen, Jason Chang, the CEO, Owen Hegarty, the executive chairman, Tony Manini, who uh, was one of my partners at Tiger's Realm as well. Tony um, is an investment director there. Those guys have uh, now got two funds, Fund 1 um, and Fund 2, uh, about, as I say, 2 billion Canadian or Aussie under management. Uh, I think, you know, at some point you'll see Fund 3 start as well. Uh, and the focus there is more very much advanced stage or operating assets, um, bigger bigger types of projects, of course. So, so as an example, um, we had the Matabe Gold project in Indonesia, which we sold recently for, I think, about $1.2 billion. Uh, the guys have recently bought Kestrel, uh, coking coal mine in Australia off Rio Tinto for 2.2 billion. So big, much bigger transactions, much bigger, you know, um, projects there. The focus is very much for those guys on uh, the key commodities we we really know and love, and that is copper, gold, um, to a lesser extent, uh, uh, potash and coking coal. Um, what, one of the things the fund hasn't invested in really is uranium. Um, for for whatever reason, really, I think it is, you know their concern there has been uh, timelines and lead times to production for most projects around the world, which is sort of telling and, and leads into a bit of discussion about what we're seeing uh, on that front. But um, no, EMR has right. been a tremendous success. Mm. Right, and certainly interesting, and and also whether or not, given the the situation in the uranium industry, the supply demand fundamentals, the coming out of a bear. Cycle. It'd be interesting to see what uh, what the folks at EMR now are starting to think about uh, the potential value proposition that exists. Mm-hmm. So, um, so tell us a bit about ISO, uh, the share structure, management, compensation, cash on hand, and uh, what are the key projects? Yeah, absolutely. So, so look, we we uh, you know we're, we've only re- really been around since 2016. Uh, and that means we haven't got too many shares out at the moment. We've got 55 million shares out. Um, NextGen is the biggest shareholder with 59% uh, at the moment. We've also got, we've done a number of transactions with some of the other major uranium players, including Cameco and Areva uh, and JCU, the Japanese uranium conglomerate. Um, so we see those guys heavily on the register as well. So Cameco is there with 7%, Arano or formerly called Areva, the French giant uh, there with 3% and JCU with a couple of percent. Um, we're, uh, you know, we're in a very fortunate position and, and quite a good day to be speaking to you, Andrew, in that we've just uh, in the process of closing and financing. Cormark and, um, brought to us a bought deal for four and a half million. I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably close on five, five and a half million at some point in the next few days. Uh, so that sees us very well funded. We'll have about $7 million in the bank uh, come the new year. Uh, and that allows us to to focus on uh, on our key projects out in the eastern Athabasca. Um, compensation and, and that side of things, I should say, you know, you know we, we run a pretty lean uh, shop here. The four full-time employees that we've got in ISO uh, are all exploration geologists, myself included. So, so we, you know, on that basis, there isn't much that goes into administrative costs in that sense. Every everyone's a boots on the ground type geologist, uh, and thereby, you know, spending a lot of time on 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 the actual exploration work. So that that we think is uh, a, a real bonus and a benefit for shareholders that we're all focused on the exploration programs that we're doing. Um, the uh, and then just on the projects. So, look, as I say, Eastern Athabasca focused, and as as you know well, Andrew, you, you, if you want quality projects, you've got to go where uh, there are quality deposits. Uh, and certainly, that Eastern Athabasca it produces all of Canada's uranium at the moment. Uh, it's the point. Uh, it, it's the area of the world where there are the highest grade uranium deposits. Uh, you know, the, the the major mines out there owned by Cameco being MacArthur River and Cigar Lake, uh, their head grades are typically around 20% uranium, which is two orders of magnitude greater than a number of the other mines around the world. So, you know, astonishing grade, huge, uh, huge projects in that sense. 
Um, you know, MacArthur, uh, until it closed recently, was the biggest uranium mine in the world. MacArthur produced 13% of the world's uranium. So MacArthur alone was the equivalent of Saudi Arabia in oil terms. So, you know, there's so much uh, exploration potential out there. Uh, and one of the things that we're doing, so, you know, if you a little bit of geology, the Athabasca Basin, it's a sandstone basin, sits above uh, an unconformity, as they say in, in, in geological terms, and below that you've got the basement rock. Now these deposits, MacArthur and Cigar Lake, for example, sit at the unconformity and in the sandstone, and the alteration in those those deposits is, is can be very very intense, and so um, it means that the the rocks are very weakly consolidated, you know, often having a consistency like toothpaste or, or sort of wet concrete, uh, and that means that you know the mining costs associated with those deposits are, are really very, very high. Uh, and hence you've seen the closure of MacArthur River. Um, what we've found at Arrow is a very different beast. It sits down in the basement, in that coarse, uh, competent, crystalline basement rock. And what that means is that that deposit lends itself to conventional low-cost underground mining. Uh, and it turns out, you know, historically, the exploration model for these deposits has been that they uh, you, you don't get deposits of the arrow size down in the basement. Well, we've now turned that theory on its head and proven that, you know, I think at, at next in there we've got a, a resource of 360 million pounds of, of uranium in a basement hosted deposit. Now that's a, a very big deposit. Um, yeah. You know, so 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 those those things it turns out are the best things to have the best things to look for uh, you see next gen's pea we've got a, an mpv on that project at 50 dollar uranium price of about three and a half billion dollars um, so it turns out they're the jewels in the crown of the athabasca basin that's what you've got to go after and lo and behold the eastern athabasca probably the most prospective part of the world for uranium deposits has never ever been effectively and systematically explored for that type of mineralization so at ISO, our, our strategy is very, very simple. Explore the properties that we got, that we acquired from NextGen for that type of mineralisation and also put our foot on as much of the eastern Athabasca as we can and start drilling below the basement into the structures that host those Arrow-type deposits. Um, you know, to my mind, there will almost certainly be other Arrow-type uh, deposits uh, worth uh, you know millions of dollars in that eastern Athabasca, they just haven't been looked for yet. So so our strategy is so very simple, just to do that. Okay, so so give give folks just kind of a picture in their mind of of where where Arrow is in relation to say uh, a Cigar Lake in terms of distance, and also where the properties of ISO are in relation to these locations. Sure. So so. Uh, the eastern Athabasca, if you you go about 600 kilometres north of Saskatoon, the capital of Saskatchewan, and I should say, you know, in Saskatchewan, uh, that's the place to be exploring as well. It's, it com consistently ranks in the Fraser Institute Survey of Exploration Managers uh, and Mining Companies in the top one or two jurisdictions in the world. Uh, you know, they're, they're used to uranium mines being built there. You've got all of the infrastructure expertise um, uh, and, and, and governmental support to develop a project out there. It's a great place to explore in that sense. So we're out in the eastern part of the Athabasca. You know, some of our projects, for example, Thorburn Lake is only six kilometres away from that giant cigar lake mine. Um, next gen's on the southwestern part of the basin. Uh, you know, a few, a couple of hundred kilometres to the southwest, not far from the Alberta border. Uh, that that's uh, you fast fast becoming a, a, a new sort of Eastern Athabasca equivalent, if you like, um, largely driven by the team at NextGen and what they've discovered in Arrow. Uh, very, you know, very, again, very big deposit. Not as much infrastructure, but you've still got power and roads and things in that part of the world. So it's still still a great place to be exploring and, uh, and finding and developing projects. Okay. Well, so with with NextGen kind of having a large bulk of the shares, what, what's the what's the methods behind that, and and how will NextGen monetize those shares? Is this something that's kind of planned to be, uh, you know, sold in a monetizing kind of a positive uranium price environment moving forward? 
Yeah, good question. I look at the strategy there. I, and I should say, sort of in the interest of full disclosure, I'm I'm on the board of NextGen. Lee Courier, the CEO of NextGen, is my chairman here. We've got a number of board members in common across the two companies. So we, we you know, we have a a good uh, idea of what's going on between the two companies. I suppose I'd say to you that NextGen is not not really doing any exploration out in the eastern Athabasca. Uh, so that, that's left to us, I suppose, as a, a you know majority owned associated company in that sense um but you know our strategy there is to to you know we've we've built the team here at iso um we're actively out there exploring of course with next gen there maintaining a, a very solid position uh i should say also that next gen's participated substantially in the last couple of capital raises we've done including this one that we're, we're working on at the moment um next gen's putting in 1.5 million into that deal um so, you know, our intention there is to keep NextGen there as a major shareholder. Uh, and I think probably, you know, what we're hearing from NextGen, Cameco and others on the register is that, you know, they're happy with their shareholding. Uh, no one's selling, none of the corporates are selling. Uh, and that is because if we make a discovery, um, as we appear to be on the verge of, uh, then, you know, they're already well positioned should they want to buy uh, more stock in the company or take the company over at some point in time. So, so uh, okay. I suppose it's all about positioning in the in the story. Sure, yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure NextGen knows knows the methods in which they'll they'll do what they need to do in a in a you know uranium price environment of you know sixty five dollars or seventy dollars uranium and and so forth. So, so with that, so the companies obviously share efficiencies in management. So there's there's obviously some some joint use between the companies of the management and, and probably facilities and so forth. And, uh, and you just said that NextGen uh, supports in a, uh, in a private placement type deal. Does, does NextGen support financially directly or is it only in, uh, you know, participating in private placement type deals? No, look, it's all arm's length and, and only participating in, in private placement type deals. Um, you know, so there's a, a very clear distinction and demarcation there on that front. Okay. So, so Craig, you're involved with NextGen, as you said, and you know it really well. Uh, realistically, what is the true time frame for permitting community outreach, infrastructure, construction, commissioning, and finally, actually canning cake? Sure. Look, I'd, I'd recommend that you, you get Lee Courier, the CEO of NextGen, or Travis McPherson, the, the, the head of corporate development there on, on the show and have a chat to them about that because it's, um, you know, I, I can give you my, my sort of high level overview. And I think, you know, we're working on that timeline in the company now. Um, but what I would say to you is that, you, you know, there's a couple of sort of key things. Firstly, NextGen's project is very straightforward and, and modest-sized mine. The cash flows will be extraordinary. It will be one of the highest margin mines ever built. Um, but uh, from a very modest mine, so, you know, the environmental impacts of that mine are, are, will be very minor. Um, so that it's got a lot of pluses that we think will allow it to be permitted a lot uh, a lot faster than anyone expects. I think, you know, also what we're seeing, that, that project, if you look at the, the pre-feasibility study that Lee put out there a few weeks ago, uh, it, it will throw off about $3 billion in uh, in royalties and direct taxes Saskatchewan government over a nine-year mine life and about $1.5 in, in royalties to the federal government. So, of course, and, you know, Saskatchewan's economy is a little bit depressed at the moment. You've seen Cameco close MacArthur River and retrench a bunch of people. The potash businesses there in Saskatchewan aren't going so well. So, they've, you know, they've got a number of challenges uh, and they are really very, very keen, both, both the Saskatchewan government and the federal government, uh, to encourage further development and job creation and growth in Saskatchewan. So, you know, people are highly motivated to... to uh, help us advance our project is what I would say to you. Okay. Uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds good. Well, on on that on that topic, NextGen, uh, I'm not familiar. I haven't looked at it recently with the uh, the, the pre feasibility study there. What is all in cost uh, there for the uh, the mine? Uh, all in cost. I think you know the cash cost um, un under the pre feasibility study will be about four uh, around US four dollars a pound. Uh, the all-in sustaining numbers around $12 a pound. 
Uh, and the all, uh, you know, total number with a return on capital, I think, with a discount rate of 10% is about $17 a pound. So it's an extraordinary positive deposit. You know, I, it's like nothing else I've ever seen. Uh, certainly something that I think, you know, a Rio Tinto or a BHP would be proud to have. Um, it, it will it will do the most extraordinary thing, and that is occupy the first quartile of the cost curve at a cash cost of about a quarter of the next best mine. So um, it's a it's a disruptive deposit in that in that sense. It's a, it's it's a bit of a freak of nature. And and the uh, the study was done at uh, a base case of fifty pound uranium. Yeah, that's right. That's that's right, Andrew. Okay. And uh, you, you know, I think um, we'll see that. Um, you know, long-term contracts uh, over the next year or two, we'll start seeing those get signed at, at north of that that sort of level. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in large part because of the closure of Macarthur River, of course. Uh, and right. our understanding is that you know, Cameco needs a, a uranium price much higher than fifty dollars a pound to bring that back on stream. So the the world will be in deficit. Uh, until contracts start getting written at those sorts of prices, so hence we use that number. Right. So, so the next gen journey has been mostly written so far during the downside of the last uranium mm. cycle. Do you believe that uh, it's extra difficult to realize full value during discovery phases when you are in an extended torture period like what we've seen post Fukushima? <laughs> yeah, excellent question. I, I think. Um, you know, certainly, if if uh, if we'd discovered Arrow during that last boom, you know, next gen would be a sort of probably a ten billion dollar plus company. We saw examples of, of that during that last boom. So you know, you can do much, so much better when you get a positive market. But the extraordinary thing about that is, and and I, I like to sort of talk to people about it from the the point standpoint that the very first capital raise we did in next gen was at five cents a share. I think that was back in 2011, 12, 2000, yeah, late 2011, early 2012. Um, so that was post Fukushima, post the flooding of, of that nuclear plant that was caused by that tsunami. Uh, and of course that had a, a really serious impact on uranium prices and, and is pushing that downward trend for the past six years. Um, so, you know, despite making that discovery, uh, starting the company, making the discovery post Fukushima, we've still managed to take that, uh, turn those investors' dollars, uh, take them from five cents a share up to about three. I think we hit as high as four dollars twenty or thereabouts a couple of years ago. So, you, you know, it, that's key to what we're doing and why. You know, people people ask us, well, why would you be exploring for uranium? in this horrible downturn. Well, firstly, we're contrarian. Secondly, we're not doing anything else. We don't do anything else. We, this is our business. We're in it for life. Um, but, but, but thirdly, uh, you know, despite this downturn, a discovery in the Athabasca Basin can, can really deliver extraordinary returns for investors as, as, as the guys have done there at NextGen. Right. Well, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting and entertaining to to see how this plays out as we as we get underway with this new cycle. So you've uh, you've been around in the Athabasca Basin for some time, uh, and of course, lots of other places. But in this region, what company do you kind of have respect for or like in this area that has kind of been a respectable situation? Yeah, well, there are a few of them. I... You know, of course, NextGen is doing something that I think is absolutely extraordinary. You go out to site and uh, the, the guys there, the, you know, the, the way they operate, um, I think is actually sort of best in class uh, and certainly, you know, as good if not considerably better than some of the way some of the majors operate. So, you know, I, I, that, that project's in such good hands. Um, I think, you know, there are a number of other players, of course, Cameco, uh, on the eastern Athabasca with uh, their mines and mills and projects do a tremendous job. Um, I think, unfortunately, they're, you know, they're, they're struggling a little bit at the moment with some of the issues around uh, the, the, the cost base of those projects. But they, you know, they do a fantastic job there and, and you know, such a wonderful company to support Saskatchewan the way they do. Uh, you know, the, then we see some other guys out there. I, I caught up with Jordan Trimble 
from Sky Harbour yesterday. He he continues to impress me greatly. He he's uh, he's got some some really good looking projects out there and uh, and doing some exciting stuff there. Uh, so you know there's a, a few around. Denison, of course. Um, uh, I should say, so Steve Blower, my Vice President of Exploration here, Steve came to us from Denison, where he was the Head of Exploration, and he led the team that discovered Denison's Griffin ore body, which is another one of these examples, rare examples of basement-hosted mineralisation. I think, you know, Denison does a very good job as well. They've got some really good projects and an interest in a mill. Um, but outside of that, that's, you know, you start to struggle to come up with names. Um, and I think you know, for investors, that has some serious uh, ramifications, implications, in that, um, you know, when you look at the space and look as to where you're going to put your money, there's not, there aren't many people that you can put it into. So um, I guess one, one of the very few benefits of this downturn that we've gone through, the sort of length and depth of it, uh, has meant that there's been a natural filtering process occur. And, uh, right. and and so now there there aren't there aren't many of us left, <laughs> and the ones that are okay. there are serious and and have, have managed to survive. Right. Well, you're an Australian, and I know you have a presence globally, and I know you look beyond just Canada, and even in some cases the U.S. I'm sure you're looking at at home country and and other places as well. So along the same lines, what what you know if you can't share businesses. Uh, what are some respectable people in the industry that you've come across globally? What what kind of names do you uh, respect across the the industry that have, have made their mark and and have a good uh, set of wisdom and experience? Yeah, good question. Look, there, there are some some really good operators out there. I I spent a little bit of time in London with Daniel Major. Uh, Daniel runs uh, Goviex. Um, you know, those projects, permitted projects in Africa that could be brought on stream very quickly. Uh, you know, he, he, he's doing a fantastic job and, and got some good, good looking stuff there, I think. Um, uh, you know, who else can I talk about? Down in the US, I think, you know, there are a few good, good operators. George Glazier at uh, Western Uranium, um, you know, very, very impressive. The guys at Energy Fuels do a, a great job, of course, and I think, you know, for your listeners, that's probably pretty important with this Section 232 petition um, uh, for, for, for uranium that, that was brought forward by energy fuels. Uh, you know, they could be, they could, could stand to be a, a, a tremendous beneficiary of, um, of, of, of a decision, a positive decision on that 232 petition. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a few guys... But again, you know, you sort of struggle to find too many names out there. I think, you know, the, the companies, serious uranium companies left in the world at the moment, there's only about 30 of us, uh, as opposed to, you know, a few years ago, there was probably 300 listed uranium companies. The other thing about that is that, of course, the combined market capitalization of our sector nowadays is only about $15 billion. Pre-Fukushima, it was over $100, $130 billion. So, you know, for investors, the the beta potential, the, the sort of total market potential, uh, is is probably five times their money. Um, so you know that again, um, as an investor myself, the way I look at it is, well, you know, you don't have to spend too much time thinking about picking actual names and stocks. Just buy a basket of them all, because as the market starts to move up, as uranium prices return to the norm, the whole the whole uh, the, the the tide will lift all boats. Right, right, and and you know the the combined market cap of the industry is is not is really really similarly close to one company in the cannabis sector, Canopy Growth on the TSX. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's interesting to put such a small industry in perspective and how such a big impact it has on the nuclear power industry. Um, so moving on, uh, so you're part of management over at Skeena Resources. Uh, how are things going over there and, and give investors an idea of kind of how you split up your time between these companies? Yeah, sure. Look, I'm, I'm not on the management team there. I'm just on the board at Skeena. Uh, and so, you, you know, that, does, that, that, that doesn't take up too much of my time um, at all, really. Uh, and, and while, you know, the management team there led by Walter Coles uh, are doing a tremendous job. So um, thankfully, you know, I, I, I get to be... Um, you know, just a, a board member 
but a very happy board member, I should say. You know, Walt's got some, um, he's done a tremendous job of bringing on board. Firstly, that SNP project. SNP was, was one of the highest grade and highest margin gold mines in the world. Uh, and then, of course, he, he did the deal to bring on board Escade Creek, which, you know, was, I think for many, is the highest margin mine in the world. Uh, you know, Barrick and its predecessors produced uh, of the order of three and a half million ounces there at somewhere around a head grade of 46 grams per tonne or an ounce and a half per tonne gold equivalent. So, um, you know, that's a, a fantastic deposit. And there's so much left there, of course. Uh, the challenge at both SNP and SK going back 20 years ago was the lack of infrastructure and access meant that the cutoff grades that, that were employed at those mines uh, were very, very high. I think the cutoff grade at SNP, for example, was about 20 grams per tonne gold. Uh, nowadays, all the infrastructure is caught up. Um, at both mines, you've got roads within a few kilometres. You've got um, uh, a run of river hydroelectric plant that, that's there that can provide power uh, and good road access all throughout there now. So, uh, you know, when it comes to redeveloping those mines, the cutoff grades will be that much lower. So, they, you know, they're spectacular projects. That's one of the weird anomalies in the market at the moment. I, I think Schooner, to my mind, is one of the best op investment opportunities out there. It's uh, a market cap today is about $35 million. I, I think, you know, in a normal market, it should be worth a couple of hundred million dollars. But um, uh, just because of the sort of, you know, gold pricing issues going on at the moment in, in the resource space, uh, the, the guys aren't being awarded for what they've achieved there just yet. But that'll change. And thanks for correcting me. I, I said management in my ignorance. <laughs> so switching gears just a little bit. So what do you see as the backbreaker catalyst? to lift uranium off the ground over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, there are a couple of things that, that are going on at the moment that are playing out at the moment that we've been predicting for a long time. But like anything, these things take a little bit longer than you expect to, to have happen. So, you know, as an industry, we've been predicting, um, and, and I, I should say, you know, you, you've got supply and you've got demand. And on the demand side, um, you know, I don't profess to know too much about that aspect of things. You know, when, when as miners, explorers, developers, and miners, we're usually supply side tragics, uh, but we, we don't have the greatest of visibility through to the demand side. But what we do know is that post Fukushima, um, you know, we saw uh, demand dwindle considerably. Uh, a couple of things have happened on that front. You know, two months ago, we saw global demand finally reach pre-Fukushima levels. We know that China's uh, very quickly developing a much larger nuclear fleet. Uh, and um, and so, so demand side growth continues steadily at more or less 2% year on year. So um, so that's okay. That's, that's looking after itself. But, but really, the whole story, to my mind, is on the supply side. Uh, in, you know, if you direct your listeners to our, our website, um, you'll see on our company presentation we put in a cost curve there. Now, the, the cost curve in the uranium sector is, is a little bit of a tricky thing, uh, and and you know there's a there's a fair amount of BS that goes into that cost curve as well. And one of the things that we haven't gone through as an industry, as a sector within the mining industry, is a move to quoting all in sustaining numbers. Uh, the gold industry, of course, 10 years ago went through that pain and now everyone understands all, all in sustaining numbers as opposed to cash costs, give a much better view of the picture. Um, uranium, we don't do that very effectively at all. But what we do know from, from recent experience is that uh, costs of, of production are much higher than, than than what people are sort of really talking about, uh, and hence you've seen some dramatic things happening on the supply side. So you, you've seen Kazatomprom close 30% of their production or reduce their production by 30%. Cameco has shut their US operations. They then shut Eagle Point, and then they shut Macarthur River, which was which was, of course, the, the biggest news of all. So all of that pain that we had to happen on the supply side we're finally seeing play out uh, and, and in, a, in a really dramatic fashion, and it's happened very, very quickly. Um, the, thing, the other thing, though, that we hadn't predicted was that, you know, for each every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, what we found is that, you know, with Cameco closing MacArthur, they still have long-term supply agreements with their customers, particularly those in the US. 
Uh, and so they've had to wade into the market and buy physical product. And that's what what's driven, in, in large part, we think, driven the price rise from about $18 a pound to $29 a pound today. Um, Chemical disclosed most uh, on their most recent quarterly call, they need to buy two million pounds this year, uh, still to do this year, and then next year it's of, of the order of fourteen or fifteen million pounds that they need to buy to to replace that uh, or to feed product into that long term contract. So you know that we we would expect that that will continue to have a fairly dramatic impact on the market. And then the other thing that's happened on the demand side is the emergence of a number of financial entities that are looking to invest in the space. We saw the Yellow Cake Fund established in London. They raised two hundred million dollars. Um, you know what's not uh, what's little known at the moment is that uh, come first of January they've got the right to buy another hundred million dollars worth of product off Kazadamprom. Um, my understanding is that they'll be raising that money and buying that product. So, you know, all of a sudden, they're, they're you know, with those closures, you're seeing these new pockets of demand. Right. And and a lot of that buying will be in the spot market. Uh, so we reckon that there is sort of huge upward pressure emerging uh, to drive the, the spot price up over the next six to 12 months. Right, and certainly the uh, the supply choking that's that's occurred, and and these purchases by these holding funds coming into the market, and Cameco stepping into the spot market is all good stuff. And and of course another another big adder to it is is just the the timing of long term contracts that are coming due and need to be redone over the next couple of years. And then of course the the section two thirty two adds a nice little uh, pop to uh, to what's going to potentially happen in twenty nineteen twenty twenty. So, uh, moving on, on on Section 232, what what is your view on Section 232, and will Canadian-based producers be a part of the potential deal there? Yeah, look, I I think um, that's an interesting one. I, I you know I I reckon it was a a good move to put forward by Energy Fuels and uh, Jeff Clender uh, at, at uh, URE. I I think you know to me it makes sense that you you, you want to have um, a strong degree of energy security in your country, and 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 of course, I think 80% of, uh, or maybe even more, 90% of the uranium used in the US is supplied from outside the country, and uh, about 40 or 50% of that comes from uh, former Soviet Union states. Uh, so, so less than ideal situation there. Uh, so, so to me, it makes sense, and I, I think, you know, my prediction is that. Um, you know, potentially even for political reasons, because of course there's sort of a lot of talk about the Clintons and their their, their sort of position in 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 that situation. Um, you know, it's probably another opportunity for Trump to to sort of sink the slippers into to Hillary and Bill. Um, so there's a political element to it as well. So, but but I think you know commercially it makes great sense, uh, and so I, I right. think you'll see that go through. I don't know about, you know, Trump and Trudeau don't seem to have the best of relationships at the moment. So so whether whether Canada gets, uh, you know, um, to be part of that party, I'm not so sure. <laughs> um, right. I sort of wouldn't wouldn't expect it. Um, you know, possibly Australia. I think Australia's actually sort of, you know, got a much stronger relationship with the US and uh, and we saw with the aluminium and, and steel uh, tariff situation, uh, Australia was given a free pass there. So, um, but for Canada, not 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 so sure. To me, it would make sense to include them because, of course, that you know the Athabasca Basin is not too far away from Montana. And uh, but it'll be interesting to see. I, I I think you know, of course, what happens when it when it when when the decision's handed down by the Department of Commerce to Trump, he's then got 90 days to sign off on it. You know, as if if it goes through as I expect it would, then we potentially end up with a two-tier pricing system. It won't have a big impact on uh, overseas pricing or, or prices external to the US, but what it will have is a dramatic impact on and increase on the price that's uh, achieved by US producers. So, um, yeah, you know, very positive uh, down there. 
yeah, no, there'll be some interesting points coming out of this and see. There's no better circumstances that are lining up with the protectionist uh, administration, uh, the folks that are running these agencies. Uh, there's there's kind of no better. Uh, it's a really good situation that's set up. And, uh, you know, with, with Cameco and the infrastructure that Cameco has and the capacity of the U.S. with, with almost, almost, almost no fuel cycle uh, infrastructure at this point, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they manage to get this off the ground and how uh, you're going to have to have some serious capital uh, capex going into the U.S. in order to start meeting some of these minimum quotas that have been asked for. So it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting couple of years uh, coming ahead here. Absolutely. So on on uh, on another subject, do you see SMR technology being kind of the direction of the nuclear power industry in the coming decades? Look, I think longer term, absolutely. Um, you know, will it have an impact in in the next five, ten years? It will start to, but uh, but but certainly it, it makes sense um, to to my mind. I think um, you know the 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 safety rating of these things, they're, they're, they're very stable, um, safe things nowadays. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes people sort of um, probably concerned about uh, about going down that route. But, you know, as I mentioned, I, I had quite a bit of experience in building a coal mine in, in far eastern Russia. And one of the things that we were looking at to provide power to that coal mine was acquiring a, um, you know, the, in Russia there's a huge fleet of uh, nuclear-powered uh, icebreakers, uh, and so we were looking at potentially acquiring one of these, parking that offshore, and, and powering our mine um, from what is in essence a, a small modular reactor. Uh, so you know there actually is already precedent for uh, for use of, utilisation, or and deployment of, of, of those sorts of uh, those sorts of things. So you know to me it's a, a logical step, and, and certainly if you you know I, I think. California is an example that they want to they want to move to zero carbon um, energy sources completely by 2040. Uh, to my mind, the only way you can get there is to to employ uh, nuclear technology, and SMRs make make the most sense on that front. Right. It'll be interesting to see if California can actually grow some brains and, and start to wise up. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's certainly certainly interesting uh, to to look at these and and. The technology is impressive. The safety, the safety factors are impressive. The money that's starting to come into it is impressive. The uh, the companies behind it uh, is certainly interesting, and and it, it's the fact that you can potentially build these things in a warehouse and 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 ship them by by surface roads or rail to uh, to the location or by a boat is uh, really impressive. So it'll be interesting to see how the next ten years uh, how that develops out, and maybe even in the near term, maybe in the next five years, we'll start to see some prototypes be deployed. So, uh, yep. yeah, sure. what what other natural resources sectors uh, do you see having very strong fundamentals over the next couple of years? Uh, look, I, I, I've, a couple of things. I think um, you know, again, this downturn has been so uh, so sort of long and, and deep that. Um, you know, not a huge amount of development work and exploration have been done in for a, for a number of metals, uh, but I really like copper. You know, copper's always uh, there's always good strong demand for that, growing demand particularly with this uh, you know increase in use of battery technology around the world, um, and you know the head grade of copper mines in the world has dropped dramatically over the last uh, the last uh, sort of decade. Uh, and so, you know, having a good copper project, you're always going to do well. Um, you know, the other the other sort of macro trend that I really like that we're looking at is uh, is you know the move to, to battery metals and and, and and more battery materials. One of the studies that we we uh, would sort of we look to a fair bit is a, a Rio Tinto um, study that they commissioned MIT to do for them to look at who will be the big beneficiaries of. Uh, of this battery EV revolution, uh, but also including in that AI and robotics. Uh, and the very the, the surprising finding is that on a sort of semi-quantitative basis, tin uh, is set to be the biggest beneficiary of all of that because, of course, tin's used in solder, 
uh, and, and the need for, for the tin goes up dramatically. And of course, there's been no real exploration for tin for a very, very long time and no development projects sitting on the sidelines. So, no, I really like the outlook for tin. Um, but lithium, cobalt, uh, graphite, uh, and then copper and nickel are also the big beneficiaries of that. What is, you know, a transformative, transformatory um, fourth leg of the industrial revolution, if you like. So, you know, we, we love the battery metal space. Uh, and uranium fits within that, of course, as well, because it, it, it provides the, the, the cleanest energy possible to, to feed into those batteries. Good insights. Uh, appreciate that. Um, certainly, certainly the uh, the value proposition with uranium at this point is is by far yeah. <laughs> pretty pretty significant. So uh, back back to that kind of subject. Uh, besides the U.S. and Canada, so you got to pick something else. What other one uranium jurisdiction do you like? <laughs> good, good question. Good question. Um, you know, Australia's not too bad. Western Australia, of course, we've got some some very good deposits there. Although, you know, we need much higher prices before those things become economic. But it, it seems that you can actually permit and develop a project there nowadays. Now, I mentioned Daniel Major and Goviex there before. Uh, he's he's got some good projects in parts of Africa. Um, oddly enough, you know, I, I think Nigeria is really quite interesting because of the the grade of the deposits. They're tricky jurisdiction, of course, but um, you know, not you know, for the quality of the assets, it's almost worth going there, I think. Okay. No, that sounds good. I figured you would say Sorry, Australia. I think I said, I, yeah, I think I said Nigeria. I meant Niger. But, uh, yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I was I was, uh, was wondering about that. Uh, so <laughs> thoughts thoughts on, on Namibia and, and its uh, its status? Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting one because, of course, we saw uh, Rio Tinto sell Rossing to a Chinese conglomerate there a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I think those projects are interesting. I, you know, I think Rossing's probably been losing money for some time. They're incredibly low grade. Uh, you know, that, they're the things I refer to. I think they, they produce uranium from deposits that are about 250 ppb. Um, we, uh, we, um, you know that that's our cutoff grade in the Athabasca Basin. Um, you know I think grade is everything when it comes to finding to, to developing a project that has a good margin. Uh, so you know I'm I'm not the biggest fan of the Namibian deposits. Okay, so so uh, what's up for ISO in, in 2019? So how will the money be used that you just raised? What specific targets will you be focused on? And give us an idea of how much you plan to expend in 2019. Yeah, so um, the the plan there. So you know we're in a very fortunate position now that we're very well funded for the next year to two years, uh, just depending on what we find. Our, our our major you know major focus at the moment is on our Lock East property. So we we did a deal with Cameco back in May. Uh, we immediately sent a drill rig out there. We we had a drill rig drilling at our Geiger property, and we wanted to drill one hole there uh, to meet some exploration expenditure commitments on that property. Um, and we we targeted our best target there, and, and lo and behold, the team did very well and hit uh, a significant mineralised intercept there. Discovery of a new high grade zone. Uh, we we drilled eight and a half metres at uh, about 1.3% uranium. So you know people like to talk in gold equivalent. Terms, that's eight and a half meters at 22 cent grams per ton gold equivalent at current prices. So you know, really, really strong intercept there, uh, and that's our primary focus. We we announced, uh, uh, put out a news release today talking about where we'll be drilling. Uh, we'll be doing some very modest step outs around there to, to see if we can't find out where that mineralisation is going and, and its extent. So I think you know people can expect some very uh, good news from us as we kick off the drilling. Uh, I think we'll be drilling come the 10th of January, uh, and then that'll go on for six weeks or so. Um, you know, one of the great things about exploring for uranium is you get a couple of kicks of, of, of good news releases when you hit mineralisation because, of course, you, you get your scintillometer results as soon as the core comes out of the ground, and then uh, and then you get your assays four to six weeks further down the road. So, you know, there'll be good, strong news flow coming out of that project. And then beyond that... We've got, uh, you know, the other thing about the eastern Athabasca Basin is that 
during that last boom in 2007, a huge amount of money was raised. Uh, and uh, a lot of that went into drill holes in the eastern Athabasca. Uh, but unfortunately, with the, the Fukushima incident, uh, the money dried up. So what, what that meant was that there a lot of companies have done the first or second round of drilling, typically just the first round of drilling, hit mineralisation and then haven't been able to afford to, to follow that up. Uh, and so, you know, we're one of the first companies to come back in in this new part of the cycle and be funded to allow us to go and firstly acquire that ground and secondly go in and follow up those drill holes. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll be doing more of that. We've got a, uh, I think there are five mineralised intercepts on the Geiger property that have never been followed up that, uh, you know, have tremendous potential. So, you know, one of the things that that allows us to, to sort of have, you know, what we do, what we talk about is, is high impact exploration. Uh, we're not doing all of that initial, you know, time, uh, time intensive, capital intensive um, exploration work. We're simply getting in and following up existing drill holes where mineralised intercepts have been made, and any one of those could very quickly turn into a discovery, as we're seeing at our hurricane zone on the Rock East. Okay, and uh, is there any JV carry with uh, with Cameco or or Rano at this point? No, look, we we don't. We, we've managed to do some really very neat, clean deals with those guys, uh, whereby we've bought 100% of, of, of our projects from them. Including Geiger and Laroc, uh, for 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 shares, uh, and you know one of the great advantages and, and few advantages of this downturn has been that people have been willing to do deals at very reasonable prices. So where we've made that hurricane zone discovery on the Rock East, uh, we acquired that project off Cameco for three hundred thousand dollars worth of shares and twenty thousand dollars in cash back in May. Uh, you know, so so we're, we're very well positioned on on that front, and we don't have any of those cumbersome joint venture agreements and things that you know take up a lot of management time. Uh, and, and the other advantage is we get another major on the share register with a substantial shareholder. Okay, so so why should investors look at ISO now, and what would you say to those considering ISO at this point? Uh, look, you know, we're. we're um, a fairly rare commodity at the moment, uh, a very active junior explorer. We're, we're cheap. We've only got a $20 million market capitalisation. We've got projects out, you know, in that eastern Athabasca uh, in, in what is an incredibly prospective part of the world. Huge number of walk-up drill targets that could uh, at any moment turn into a discovery. But probably the most exciting thing is, is the fact that we'll be drilling uh, some in and around that high-grade mineralised intercept come January, and, and so we should have some really good news flow out of that. Uh, we're all hopeful that that turns into a significant uh, discovery. Um, you know, there's all sorts of exploration risk uh, in what we do, of course, but the risk-reward equation is right. You know, the, the potential upside is is absolutely enormous. Right, right, and and the timing right now, the context of time for for these types of vehicles is a Timing-wise, it's a pretty good place to be right now. So, uh, Craig, for those who want to learn more about ISO, where should they go? They can uh, visit the website, isoenergy.ca, so isoenergy.ca. Um, that, that's probably the best way to get in touch with us. Uh, you know, more than welcome to call the office as well. We're, uh, we're on 778-379-3211. Uh, but yeah, look out for, for some really good news flow over the next couple of months. Craig, well, well, good luck, and we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thanks, thanks for the time, Andrew. Really, really good to speak with you. I, lo I love some of your questions there.